Hi, it's Leon Dolan, and my new book, The Marriage Sabbatical, is out now and available everywhere. People Magazine chose it as an April pick of the month, one of the best this week, a hopeful take on commitment, they said, and an innovative story about marriage. Mmm, sounds juicy. The Marriage Sabbatical, out now, available everywhere. Welcome to Satellite Sisters. This is Liz Dolan. Today I put together an actual grab bag of a show for you. I just grabbed into our box of CDs, which is the whole Satellite Sister archive I keep here under my bed in my second bedroom. And uh, what came out was our show from March 26th, 2005. But it's a goodie, an interview with Annie Lamott. Uh, a segment about Bobby Short and a really great entertaining Sheila movie review by our own Sheila Dolan. So listen, laugh, share. We are the Satellite Sisters. Live from Los Angeles, California, Portland, Oregon, and Moscow, Russia, it's the Satellite Sisters. We're the Satellite Sisters. We had this great idea that we could launch our own radio show with each sister living in a different city, connecting on the radio just the way we did on the telephone. The Satellite Sisters. A Satellite Sister is the first person you think of when something really great happens or something really terrible happens. Who are you going to tell? Real conversations about real life. Not every conversation will change your life, but any conversation can. The ABC Radio Network's present the Satellite Sisters. Welcome, welcome. We are the Satellite Sisters, and we are five real sisters. We're in three cities on two different continents. I'm Liz Dolan in Los Angeles with my sisters Leanne and Sheila Dolan in Portland, Oregon, Monica Dolan, and in Moscow, Russia, Julie Dolan. And we have many, many things to talk to you about today. Another rich, full show. Later on in the show, we are talking to writer Anne Lamott. Later this hour, right? Her, her new, new book, book is-, is called Plan B. It's a wonderful exploration. It's called Further Thoughts on Faith. And she is one of my favorite writers. I so enjoy her. And she's going to be here to talk about faith and motherhood and aging and all the things that a lot of us are going through. Comes in and takes you for a spin. Ooh la la la, say magnifica. When every night your loved one holds you tight. Ooh la la la. You may have noticed that that's slightly different music than we normally come in with. We're the Satellite Sisters, and that's because one of the news stories this week was that a favorite of ours, Bobby Short passed away and he's someone that has always been our parents favorite we listened to his music growing up in our house when you say that's all we listened to my father had three albums he had bobby short loves cole porter he had the clancy brothers (laughs) and luciano pavarotti (laughs) neil diamond oh and neil diamond okay it's a wonder it's a wonder we're here at all frankly with that musical (laughs) collection anyway but but bobby short was a uh, famous saloon singer in new york at the cafe carlisle for like a million years, it 35 seemed. years. He died this week at the age of 80 of leukemia, and he entertained at the Carlisle for more than 35 years, the famous uh, New York night spot. Liz, I never saw him at the Carlisle, did you? I never did either. Hey, can I just say one thing? We just got word. We we had been off the air on KABC for the last few minutes, so we just came back on the air. So we apologize for any of our Southern California listeners that missed the last discussion, but we're moving on. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> All so right. I don't well, know what else to well, say. Well, I wanted to just play 
play a couple clips. A couple years ago on Mother's Day, we did an interview with Bobby Short because on Mother's Day, we like to put together shows that uh, people are mother-likes. Yeah. It's pretty self-serving, but it works pretty well for us. And she loves Bobby Short, so we were so honored to talk to him. I was thrilled, personally. And he told us the story. We talked a lot about his mom and growing up because it was Mother's Day. And he told us the story of how he became a vaudeville star at the age of 12. My father died when I was 11, and six months later, I was in Chicago learning the ropes. Was your mom supportive of that? Because that seems like a big step. She really was quite supportive. I mean, she was never a stage mom, ever. And I think she had enormous faith in me and my ability to take care of myself. And she said, do you want to do this? And I said, oh, I'm dying to do it. I want to be on the stage and be a star. And she said, well, all right. And she gave me some money and said, no, you know how to come home. You have to. <laughs> so I went. I love just even hearing his voice. Because right. even in his speaking voice, you can hear the rhythm of his singing voice, which was so smooth and unaffected and just so perfect There for was the something atmosphere. so incredibly elegant about him, too, but in an accessible way. You know, and well, that's why we, he was famous for just bringing forward songs that you wouldn't otherwise have known, things that would have passed. When we spoke to him, Liz, he said his probably his best memory was that generations of families had come to see him at the Carlisle, and he had been a part of so many people's wedding anniversaries and engagements and special days like Mother's Days and birthdays, and that he just loved treating the ladies with an elegant air, that that's what ladies expected yeah, and that's, that's what they deserve that's what he delivered we agree with that and he had another great quote about one of his favorite songs about his mom so i just i remember to- a popular song called my mom and i was i was uh, impressed with the right the, the lyricist rhyme as years grow on her i gaze upon her she's my madonna my mom <laughs> <laughs> So hats off to Bobby Short. I Thank know. you for many hours in the Dolan household. Bobby Short loves Cole Porter, and, uh, and and we'll miss you. Yes, we will. Liz, it's a thrill to have the show because sometimes you get to just pick up the phone and call your favorite writers and say, would you be on? Or Someone least, you've always wanted to right, talk to but least wouldn't our, have an excuse to. Our executive producer, Corny Cole, does that. And so I'm thrilled to talk to Annie Lamott today. She is the best-selling author of three works of nonfiction, including Traveling Mercies, Bird by Bird and Operating Instructions. She's written six novels. She's a columnist online for Salon.com. And she describes herself, or the New Yorker described her as a cranky Christian. And that's, I, I appreciate cranky Christian. It's a Christian. perfect choice for Easter weekend. Exactly. Annie Lamott's new book is called Plan B, Further Thoughts on Faith. Annie, thank you for being on Satellite Sisters oh, today. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the essays in your book, first of all, the book is wonderful. And you, I've al- I alternated through laughing, laughing, crying, crying, laughing, crying. Laughing, uh, laughing, laughing, crying, crying, because so much of what you write about really resonates in my life, just trying to be a mother and raise kids and do good and be a citizen. Yeah. Um, but you write a lot about aging. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but you write about aging. And in one descriptive passage, you say you're, you're decades past your salad days, and right now you're in your cheese days. <laughs> and, and I feel like I'm headed into my cheese days, Annie. What, what are cheese days? <laughs> Well, I, I had to make that up because I don't think there is anything. I think that there's there's salad days and then the days of wine and roses and then then there's some sort of autumn of your life days. And I thought I have like a lot of energy and um, but I feel like sort of just one of the other cheese balls sitting on the 
on the lettuce, you know, the lettuce leaves on the platter, it's still delicious, but maybe a little tiny bit riper than and then earlier in the day. <laughs> but still delicious and full, full, full of nutrition and life giving. Oh, see? Okay. That All right. We're adopting that. that. We're when, totally stealing that. Right. When you describe it like that, I don't mind being in my cheese days oh, or no. heading in. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't give back a year. I'll be 51 in a couple of weeks, and, and I don't know a person who would give back a year or a decade because you just love getting to finally, finally feel like you get to be the person you kind of dreamt about being all along. And you, you also you get so tired of lugging everybody else's stuff. It's like the, the bitter bellhop lugging trunks of your relatives' psychic stuff with you and your parents and your mothers. And finally it's like you're in this plane and you just want to fly a little more lightly and you just start chucking out <clears throat> all this stuff that used to matter to you that when you're 50 and you're a cranky Christian or one of just the cheese balls on a plate, you say, you, say, you know what, Never, I'm done. <laughs> okay, Annie, Annie, this is Julie, and I'm the oldest sister, and I'm sort of approaching that big 5-0. Really? I absolutely promise. I absolutely promise that there's a line in that book, a uh, piece untitled, that says, um, getting a little older has finally, has finally given me what I was looking for all along, which is me. And, you know, I definitely have, like, the tiny little bodily body issues. I mean, definitely have arthritis in my hand. And I get out of bed and I kind of walk around like Walter Brennan for about <laughs> ten minutes. And I do that, too. Yes. My vision's failing, you know. And, and I'm, I describe I, I'm, in, I'm in menopause. And so I have the little regular old tummy because I never got fat in my tummy. I'd always get fat in my butt or thighs. But I have this regular sort of little tummy that I think of as sort of cute in a you know, familiar way. And then you get the lower tummy, which is what I call the subcontinent. And it's like a second little tummy. It's like a little fanny pack. But um, when I showed it to my OBGYN, she said, oh, and then she pulled, zipped her down, unzipped her pants, and she showed me hers, and she said, we all have it, and it's a little drugstore for estrogen. It's where your body's storing your estrogen. So now I start to think of it very affectionately, and that's about as bad as it gets. And, you know, your feet hurt a little more, and, and you squint magoo-like, you know, against the sun, but... I, I talked to I talked to thousands and thousands of people, and and they would and almost all of them would agree they loved their 40s and then they're loving their 50s even more. My aunt Gertrude, who's 86, leaves us behind when we go hiking on the mountain, and you know, Annie, you're exhausting us. Right, right. <laughs> Woo, Julie, are you exhausted already? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. But, I'm exhausted because there's great energy. But one of the one of we're talking to Annie Lamott. Her book, new book, is called Plan B: Further Thoughts on Faith, and it's just a wonderful look at, at your life now. But one of the dramas that plays out in the book, Annie, is you at 50, at this stage in your life, the cheese days, you know, enjoying <laughs> being you. And yet you have a teenage son who is making you crazy. A little crazy. I want to just finish the last thought by saying I'm also more tired than I used to be. And oh. I take a nap every single day. And as I got older, I discovered that rest is a spiritual act, which is a very subversive thing to say in this culture which is all multitasking and getting more done and i developed a theory a practice of yoga years ago that's unfortunately fallen out of favor but it's called prone yoga and it involves lying on the floor <laughs> or on the couch with the new yorker and, um, maintaining the prone it's called 
But anyway, yes, I do have a 15-year-old son. In fact, I have six 15-year-old boys, including Sam, downstairs at this very moment. And it's like having a—it's like being on an elk preserve. I mean, <laughs> upstairs there's twelve pairs of shoes that are like boats. Well, and they're all. Yesterday, when they took them off, they're like radiant with teenage boy. Issues. There's a lot of smells that come with that age, don't you find, Annie? Say what? The smell. At the this smells age. are just indescribable. <laughs> And um, But you can see, like, in cartoons when something smells or when there's heat lines radiating off of a field of wheat, you can see those radiant lines. That's what happens when the boys take them off. I mean, you blink. You know, your eyes have to blink against it. But um, they're, they're um, uh, uh, you know, with as with real life, they're great about 80% of the time. There's a piece in the in Plan B called The Church of 80% Sincerity <laughs> by my friend David Roach, who has these severe uh, disfigurements. And he says 80% of anything is a miracle. You know, your family or the culture say that it's your sort of, it's sort of a B minus. It's not great, but um, David Roach insists, and I believe him as as the pastor that he is of the Church of 80% Sincerity. <laughs> that it's a small miracle, 80% love, 80% honesty. And, and these kids are so fantastic and alive 80% of the time. The problem is that with a teenager, a 15-year-old, almost 16, that the 20% that's awful is much dicier and scarier than it was when they were 10 or 7 or 4. In what ways? Well, it's a dangerous world out there, you know, and all of these communities, including my own, are just swamped with drugs. And, you know, Betty Ford said that if, if we had enemies at the gates that were, or at the ports that were coming in to target and imprison our teenagers, that there would be just this gigantic military uprising against them. And the fact is that we do. There's just, and, and, and it's very hard to do anything about it. You know, there's so much dope. There's so much oxycontin has hit the, the high wow. schools. The, um, there's so much speed in the high schools, and it's hard. And 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 yet, and the pot they're smoking. I mean, I smoked the non-habit forming <laughs> marijuana almost daily from the age of 12 or 13 until I got sober nearly 20 years ago. And this is not the same dope that we were smoking. This is almost another drug. And how so, do you how do you handle that then on a daily basis? What do you do, do when Sam I, Sam goes out into the world? He go he's got to go to high school. So how I do you go handle with it? Him. Yeah. <laughs> now that's Julie's approach to, to parenting, right. Annie. Julie would Julie would have happily gone to high school but and you know, college. Annie, with don't you find that a lot of parents don't even talk about this? I mean, at least that's what I loved about your book is that you talk about the parts that are really hard with the teenagers. Well, a lot of the parents do what I used to do until about a year and a half ago, which was they thought that they are here to be their children's friends. And about when Sam was somewhere in his 13th, I had, it's like the skies opened, and, or it's like the veil parted, and God threw down this fortune cookie to me, except for it was a very profound. And what it said was, you are not here to be his friend. He's got fabulous friends. In fact, they're all downstairs. Our guest is Annie Lamott. She is the author of a great new book called Plan B, Further Thoughts on Faith. She's a best-selling author. And the New Yorker describes her as a cranky Christian, and she seems to fulfill that description. Julie? You know, Annie, we were talking about parenting, and what is it? Why is it that when kids are y- younger, parents are willing to share every detail about bedwetting, about toilet training, biting, but somehow when kids become teenagers, parents clam up? Well, it's because it, it is so terrifying. Um, 
that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of adorable or manageable when your kids are little and their problems are universal and, and, um, and parents are just so desperate to share some information because no one seems to have gotten an owner's manual. When your kids are a teenager, a lot of, uh, a lot of their life is a sort of subterranean um, thing, and you don't quite know what's going on a lot of the time, and what you know about the teenage world is very scary. There is a just huge amount of drug use out there. The whole sexual rules of conduct, conduct have changed. What we are hearing teenage girls do to be considered normal and popular just makes your blood run backwards. So parents, A, don't know, and B, don't want to say because it makes it look like they're no longer in, in, running the show. But um, what what I really there's a great line on the back of Mel on the um, backside of Mel Brooks's great 2,000 year old man where the aged psychiatrist says, "Listen to your broccoli, and your broccoli will tell you how to eat it." <laughs> and I am a deep believer in in listening to your broccoli and your instinct. And I came to feel a couple years ago that there was just I, kn- I knew there was dope being smoked, but all the other parents would poo-poo it and say, "Oh, we all smoke dope. They all smoke. It's not a big deal." There's a brilliant book I'd like to tell parents about if they don't if they really don't know where to start by a, a man named Tim Cermak at C E R M A K who's a doctor and it's called marijuana what's a parent to believe and and it is scary because the, the kids brains at 15 16 17 are still in very very dynamic process of growth and change and a whole lot of the most important sectors of that, i.e. good common sense, right, right, right. the sense they not were really born connected. with, are being developed, and the dope is pouring poison on that. And so, um, Is uh, one of the ways you cope, I mean, you've always enforced with Sam, and it's written throughout the book, that he go to church with you. You're, he I doesn't mean, have to go. Now, at 15, I, I sprung him, but, it, but, I, but I do think that it was a good thing for him to go until then. Yeah. Our, our guest is writer Annie Lamott. Her new book is called Plan B, Further Thoughts on Faith. Well, one of the hallmarks of your writing, really, is how honest you are about the things that no one will come clean about. You talk a lot about, you know, motherhood. It has just sometimes it's just really flat out boring, <laughs> which I appreciate because sometimes you just cannot play one more game oh, of no. Yahtzee. You just can't. I just can't sit down and play the Yahtzee for eight hours. Just clean up the Monopoly game. It's been going on for a week. But, you know, but you top, tackle really tough topics, too. I mean, you mentioned your own sobriety. Your mother died of Alzheimer's. You know, you just... You really handle the hard stuff, but you handle it with a lot of humor and a lot of hope. Yes. And does that, sometimes hope and humor don't seem to go together because you think of humor as being cynical. You think of people who are funny as looking at the world in a very dark way, but you're very funny in your writing, but you look at it in a very bright, positive way. Well, I don't think bright is not the right word. Okay, bright isn't the right word. You're right. (laughs) Let that go for a second. But the thing is you have to remember is that I write my pieces down the road and that a lot of things are funny or really profoundly touching um, a little later, you know, when they first happen. And I write a lot about this in um, both Traveling Mercies and Plan B. When they first happen, you you, you can just be struck dumb by them. They're so painful and you you can hardly believe that you're going to be able to get through them but then the same old things turn out to 
uh, it seems like this crummy little toolbox of like you've got your best friends and and you um, maybe have a tiny community of people who just adore you and and just suddenly arrive and and a little bit of time passes and people make you go for walks and you think that could never be enough this time it's so bad and the friends the people that adore you turn out to be enough and telling the truth turns out to be enough and uh there's a wonderful line of faith and I, about faith. I do not know where it comes from. It's certainly not a Christian thing, I don't think. But it says um, that when you come to the edge of all the light you've ever known and you're about to step off into the darkness of the unknown, faith is knowing that one of two things will happen. Either you will land on solid ground or you will be taught how to fly. And if you're still alive... At, wow, that is such a beautiful thought. That, beautiful? That, it, that is incredibly optimistic. And Yeah, and it, it, the thing is that if you're still alive at 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, you realize that every single time that happened, it just didn't happen that day. Life and spirituality are, are not ATMs, you know. They take process and they take um, slogging through periods where there isn't very much light, and then one friend shows up with with, a, with one of those little flashlight keychains, you know, <laughs> where you press the two sides together, right. and you think, oh, that's not enough, it's not enough, and a little bit of light to see by, and, and, a, and a dear-hearted person beside you is really, uh, really enough almost all the time. Annie, Annie, this is Julie. I'm so, I was so impressed with how hard you work at your faith. I mean, you just, it's not like you're going through the motions. I mean... It seems like it's a real effort. Well, I, I have to say I'm a terrible Christian, and I hope I'm not a model to anyone because, um, as I've written about rather extensively, I have tiny little problems with forgiveness. And, um, and I'm one of those, <laughs> Don't we all, though, really? <laughs> and I'm one of those um, egomaniacs with low self-esteem. And so I, I have found in my experience that the willingness to change or to heal or to begin the process of the restoration of your soul, which is really what middle age has been about for me, um, it. Uh, uh, I, for, I, I Let's talk about memory because I, where that was going. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I got it back. The willingness. Oh, I'm back. I'm back. The willingness comes from the pain, you know. And that as long as things aren't that miserable, it's like when alcoholics hit a bottom. It's like if you're keeping an alcoholic from hitting a bottom, you're you're um, shortchanging them. And it's like with your faith, and when you when you can't surrender, it's because you haven't run out of bullets yet. And Annie still- Lamont, we gotta go. We have to okay. take a break this hour. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for Annie. being on Satellite Sisters. <laughs> the book is wonderful. It's a great read. Plan B. Further thoughts on faith. Ha- Annie Lamont, what ha- a thrill! Happy Easter, Annie. Happy Easter. <laughs> Entertaining Sheila, it's Bruce Willis in Hostage. And I deliberately say it that way because Bruce, he's in the movie, 
but there ain't no movie after two hours. <laughs> and hostages in theaters now. And sisters, I know what you're wondering. You're wondering, Sheila, why Bruce Willis? Why now? You've never been an action movie fan? No, that's true. That's true. Well, that's not it. I did see Gladiator 12 times. <laughs> and I have it on hold at Blockbuster for this weekend. But I've been thinking a lot about Bruce lately. And it's hard not to think about him because he's on every magazine cover. He's on television. He's on the red carpet. He's everywhere. And, you know, I'm just fascinated by Bruce. I mainly, I want to know a few things. Number one, that's an act, isn't it? That whole acceptance <laughs> of Ashton Kutcher. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even want to know the car my ex-husband drives. I don't want to know the name of the car. Never mind go on vacation with him and all the kids. So you think that's all just a sham? Yeah, I mean, that- someone actually tried to tell me once in a casual conversation. They were like, Sheila, did you hear that he bought a... <laughs> Too much information. I don't want to know the car. Okay. And the second thing I wonder, how? How did an ex-bartender from New Jersey with no articulation skills, become one of the highest paid men in the country. You know, we had to... Be- I, I beg to differ there. I was a huge Moonlighting fan. So, I, I you know, you got to go back to his TV days. Uh, the look of horror on Sheila's face. I'm not an action movie gal, but I loved Moonlighting, and I'm not afraid to admit it. I don't know. The guy doesn't open his mouth. I mean, we had to recite poetry every night after dinner. We should have been pouring drinks somewhere. Maybe we'd be making some money. And the third thing I think is on everyone's mind, and I'll just say it. If he likes sex and he has an ex, and Terry Hatcher likes sex and she has an ex, you hear where I'm going with this? No, I have absolutely no <laughs> okay, idea. Okay, on the cover of People, this week, uh, okay, Bruce... Oh, see, w- that's what we missed, is that we were talking about People magazine. Bruce Willis, the cover is, he likes ex, sex and he has an ex. <laughs> okay. Okay, and Terry Hatcher. Okay, well, you don't see where I'm going with this. <laughs> no. All righty. Maybe Ooh. I see, but I just, I'm not willing to go there. Well, I went to see Hostage, partially because my movie buddy and Diane were due for a movie date. And we don't really socialize in any other way but go to the movies together. Actually, we have nothing in common. (laughs) Absolutely nothing in common. So we go back and forth. In one month, we'll see an indie movie that I like with one of the hundreds of Gyllenhaals in it. (laughs) And another month, we'll go see Bruce Willis in Hostage. But this week, too much time had passed between our movie dates. And I forgot, did we go to her movie last (laughs) month? Or was it my movie? All right? And so right before the movie started, I started to get like this twist in in my stomach. And, you know, I had that familiar feeling that I often get, which is threatened and controlling. (laughs) Threatened and controlling. So right before the movie started, I felt compelled to lean over to my friend Diane and say, you know, Diane, um, if this movie has too much violence in it, I may have to leave. She said nothing. I said, I whispered again. I said, Diane... If this movie has no plot and it gets too intense, I think I'm going to have to leave. Silence. My friend Diane shot me a look, shot me a look in the semi-darkness and said, Leave? It's an action movie. There doesn't have to be a plot. (laughs) Okay, Diane, I beg to differ. All right? There has to be a plot and there has to be direction and there has to be acting and Russell Crowe, if at all possible. (laughs) And now I'm like fuming five minutes before the movie starts. And I'll admit so it. So you just set yourself up to hate it then. You were not, you didn't really have an open mind. I mean, Bruce Willis is a draw, and I admit it. He's in fine form in this movie, and he looks downright hot in his SWAT gear. But there I was, silently fuming to myself, there must be a plot. There's got to be a plot, or I'm out of here. I'm out of the theater. 
Oh, the good news is, in Hostage, there are so many plots. <laughs> oh, my goodness, there's a plot for everyone in the theater. It's great. There's a historic hostage situation which haunts Willis the entire movie. Then there's the ex-wife, teenage daughter situation. That's a total throwaway plot. There's the present hostage plot, which involves three teenagers and a family and arson and drugs in the entire Ventura County Police Department. There's the money laundering, kryptonite-carrying mob plot. <laughs> and yet there's another takeover hostage plot. I mean, there's ugh, there's so many plots. Plot, it's great. Pl- plots are popping. <laughs> That's good. And there is, in the movie, what I will simply refer to as... The son of Bono, Lynn. Really? The only thing that my friend Diane agreed on is the bad guy in this movie, who has a whole back plot, is the son of Bono. <laughs> he is the son of Bono. There's the swagger. There's the hair. There's the tilted head. But while Diane and I ingre- agreed he is the son of Bono, she thought he was cute. And I was like, you can't be serious. How can that soulless Satan be cute? <laughs> the gladiator was a god compared to him. <laughs> a god. That's the standard. Ooh. The gladiator is always the standard for you? The thing is, I was entertained in the hostage for 50 minutes, just as I predicted. I knew that 50 minutes and I would be gone. And that's, it's, it's a good movie for 50 minutes. But the thing is, I could not suspend my belief any longer. I just couldn't do it. When the limp body double started falling from the sky, I was just chuckling. I was chuckling in the darkness, which made Diane very mad. <laughs> and when Son of Bono started doing his best sort of Jack Nicholson, The Rock impression, I was laughing. I mean, I was out and out laughing, and popcorn was spilling out of my medium popcorn, which is not good when I'm losing kernels. Um, and why did I stay? Why? Why did you stay? Why did I stay? Because of your commitment to your audience. You're a professional. I stayed to the end, Liz, because of Willis. He produced this movie, and it was obvious that he put together all that anger and remorse that he really feels for Ashton Kutcher <laughs> right into every scene. Right into every scene. It's it, He's a powerhouse in an understated barkeep kind of way. <laughs> and he is entertaining. Bruce Willis is entertaining, but I don't think he was going for the laughs. No. I really, I really don't think he was going for the laughs in this movie. Is that what the title indicated to you? Hostage, no. not a comedy? <laughs> That's right. It, it, it sort of is a comedy by the end. And here's the thing. You know, I give a one to five sister rating. Yes. And I want to give it two sisters, okay? This is the thing. I am going to give Hostage one sister for the first 50 minutes okay. of the movie. I was intrigued. I was tense, and I was scared. And I was even leaned over to my friend Diane. I was feeling like I needed to bond with her after our mini fight before the movie. And I said, you know, in a not scary part, I said, hey, Diane, I'm really scared. And she looked at me like I was a moron. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to give another sister for Bruce. Got to give another sister for Bruce. He captured a character tortured by his past. And he's great. He's absolutely great in the opening scene. But unfortunately, that simple hostage plot, which I think was good, I thought was going to be the whole movie, just was apparently too simple for his tastes. So he started piling, piling, piling the plots on top. And if he had just removed his shirt a few more times in the movie, I would have given him another sister. That's right. That's the thing about you, <laughs> Sheila. You're actually very easily satisfied in some areas. So I am giving hostage with Bruce Willis two sisters. Uh-huh. 
Okay. All right. <laughs> wow. That's that. It's and some... do you think your uh, movie buddy Diane will ever recover? Is Diane it... loved it. She okay. absolutely <laughs> loved the movie. She thought it was one of the best movies she ever saw. Maybe one week when you go on vacation, <laughs> we'll just have Diane in <laughs> to give the rebuttal. <laughs> in the alternate universe that most people live in, these movies are great. Okay, Sheila, thank you so much. Another great entertainment report.